That's on. We're good. All right. Just making sure. Uh, my name is Justin. I am the family minister here at Windsor Road. And this morning we're going to continue our journey through the book of Exodus. Now we're going to take our time through the book of Exodus um, because there's just so much wrapped up in the exodus of the Israelite people. And there's so much that I believe God is, is wanting to share with us through the book of Exodus. And so we're going to take our time through it. But this morning we're going to jump in uh, to Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your scriptures, we're going to go right into the Word of God. Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going to start today, verse, starting in verse 11. Last week, our senior pastor Randy started our series on Exodus. And his big idea last week was this, in the soil of despair... God sows a seed of deliverance. Last week, we walked through, we talked through the suffering of the Israelite people. And then we talked about the preservation of baby Moses. And only with complete dependence on God, Moses will become the deliverer for the Israelite people. But first, Moses needs to be delivered himself. He needs to know what wilderness feels like. He needs to know what leaving everything feels like. He needs to know what total dependence on God looks like. So our story this morning is not of some spoiled brat from, from, the, from the king's palace, from Pharaoh's palace, but it is of a man whose past will impact his present and his future. So let's jump into our scripture this morning. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up. And came to their rescue and watered their flock. Verse 18. When the girls returned to Raoul, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, who then gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. This morning, I want to title our message. I want to title our time together. There's more to the story. Because as we find out, as we start to unpack this scripture, we will find out there is a whole lot more to this story. And if we start to be honest with, you, with each other, I think we'll learn that there's more to our story as well. See, I don't think you're here by accident today. I think you're here on purpose. I don't think you're here so that your neighbor will stop nagging you to come to church with them. I don't think you're here so you can appease a spouse or your children who have invited you to church. I think you're here because God is going to share something in this passage that is going to add to our story today. And so as we unpack the scripture this morning, 
My prayer for us is that we would allow God to unpack our hearts. So here's our scripture headlines, okay? Let's walk back through it a few times. Our scene opens on Israel's soon-to-be deliverer, Moses. He goes out and sees what's up, and he finds some injustice happening, and he acts abruptly. You see, Moses does have a servant heart, but worldly actions here. He has good intentions, but a lack of control. He has justice on his heart, but now he has blood on his hands. And his status quickly turns from observer to outcast, from favored to fugitive, and from Moses to murderer. Did you catch that? Like, Moses, right? Later on in Acts chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 11, we hear of Moses as this father of faith. He is this hero of faith. By faith, Moses did these incredible things. But the first thing we learn about Moses is that he's a murderer. So here's something really important to just keep in the back of your mind. Your sin doesn't count you out. Moses then becomes aware that Pharaoh is after him to kill him. And I would think that, that the prince of Egypt, that, that the boy who grew up in Pharaoh's house, would have some immunity when it comes to, you know, this, this sort of crime. But what I think Pharaoh's angry about is not the crime that he committed, but the line that he drew, the allegiance that he draws now with the Israelite folks rather than with the Egyptian people. You see, Pharaoh's thinking, this boy has grown up in my home. And now all of a sudden he betrays me by going and killing one of my workers to defend an Israelite worker. So Moses retreats. He leaves. He leaves town, and he goes to a town called Midian. Now, I, as a kid, I always liked to connect the dots uh, in, like, the little workbooks that mom would hand you in church to keep you quiet. And uh, I always liked to connect the dots because you get to unfold this picture that happens here. Sometimes it's like, oh, it's a unicorn, or oh, sometimes it's a stuffed bear. Oh, sometimes it's a scary clown. Um, that's not, it should be in a kid's book. I mean, what? But I love the connect the dots that happens in Scripture, too. You see, because this place, Midian, this is not the first time we hear of Midian. Midian was actually the son of Abraham through one of, through one of his concubines, Keturah. In Genesis chapter 25, he names his son Midian. The second connect the dots here is, is in the story of Joseph. You see, when Joseph, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he was sold to Midianites who then took him to Egypt where he became a prominent figure in Egypt. And now Midian is the site where the renewal process of Moses starts, where he will soon be sent back to Egypt by God. By soon, I mean like 40 years. <laughs> Moses shows compassion to the priest's daughters as they try to get water for their father's flock. He defends them and he rescues them in a much more civil manner. And then compassion is shown to Moses by the priest, who then gives Moses one of his daughters in marriage. You see, there's more to the story, and here's our big idea for today. There's more to the story because God doesn't allow our past to define our potential. There's more to your story because God doesn't allow our past to define our potential. Far too often we will discredit ourselves based solely on our past. When we look over our story, we see everything that's gone wrong and nothing that God has made right. We zero in on our unlovable qualities instead of the unconditional love of God. 
We tend to allow ourselves to grow in the disgust of our past rather than grow in the grace of God. And when we do this, we place a higher value on our sin than on the forgiveness of God. But God doesn't define our potential based on our past, but based on his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his compassion, and his deliverance of us. And so this morning, I want to focus our time, I want to focus our time on three phases that we have of Moses' life in here. Three phases that we have of Moses through these pictures that we get of him. The first phase is this, the phase of the past. I want to go back and reread for us because it's been like three minutes since we read it last and I think it's important to go back and read it again. I want to read for us again verses 11 through 14. So if you've got your scriptures, just keep them handy. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day... He went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me the same way that you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. The phase of the past. There's so many points of interest and learning to happen here. Moses sees injustice and it draws him to action. He kills an Egyptian and then tries to cover it up. You see, instead of dealing with his own issues from the day before, he goes out and he tries to fix everybody else's problems. He tries to be the deliverer before he himself has been delivered. See, Moses tries to do God's will just without God's timing. Moses finds out that others have found out and he becomes overwhelmed with fear. I think if we are honest, the story of Moses might reflect ours a little bit. This can too often look like our story. We have some struggle, some sin that takes a hold of our life and it holds on to us. We feel the pain that has caused us and we know that it's going to cause others pain as well. But we do our best to bury it and cover it up. We allow our sin the chance to grow to not just be a one and done situation, but now it's crippling. It's crippling us, it's crippling our relationships with others and it's crippling our relationship with God. So we bury our sins and our struggles inside because letting others see the real us is incredibly terrifying. And instead of sitting on our own struggle bus for a second, we decide to hop aboard somebody else's. We try and help them navigate out of their own sin when we don't have any idea of how to get out anyway. We do this because it's far less invasive to work on someone else's problems than to work on our own. It's much easier to offer advice and then leave rather than to hear advice and let it sink in. We try and deliver someone else when we ourselves have not sought deliverance from what is crippling us. I had a, a, a pastor that was teaching a bunch of pastors how to preach a little bit better and everything, and I was sitting in the room taking notes, and he said this. He said, of all of my students at seminary, I ask them and require them to read the scripture text that they're going to preach from at least 50 times. That's a lot of my day. Um, you know, that's, that seems like a long time. 50 times. And so this last week, I told Randy that I was going to do it. I was going to read our text at least 50 times. And I made it through. I made tally marks and everything and all this kind of stuff. It was wonderful. 
It was wonderful to see all of this start pouring out, but as soon as I started to do that, I started to remember other stories in Scripture. And as I read this part of Moses' life, the face of the past, I started to remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the board hanging out of your head? Well, that's really the Justin International Version, but... It's true, right? We do that. We're like, oh, man, they are really messed up. Did you see that? Oh, my goodness. But I don't have any problems at all. No, why would I have problems? You see, we need to find deliverance before we can offer it to someone else. Too often, we leave out our own messiness. We conveniently, and it's only convenient for us, we conveniently leave out our struggles, our sin, our messiness. Here's one of the things I love most about this scripture. And when Randy gave me the topic, I didn't think I'd love anything about it. Um, I was like, really? really? That's great. You know, Moses killing the Egyptian. What am I going to talk about? Here's one of the things that I love most about this scripture. Is that Moses is classified by most biblical scholars to have written the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One of the things I love most is that in the writing of his story, he doesn't leave out his messiness. He puts it in for everyone to read. I think if I was writing a book about me, which probably be like a pop-up book, because uh, it's not that interesting. <laughs> Need something that would jump off the page. I think I would leave out my messiness. I don't think I'd put it all in there. Wouldn't lay it all out on the line, but Moses does. He doesn't say a situation arose and I had to leave. He says, I killed somebody. And then I hit him in the sand, I tried to cover it up, and then the next day I went out and tried to solve everybody else's problems. We do this too. We tend to leave our past out because we think it might make us look weak. But in the eyes of others and through the lens of someone else, it makes us look real. We tend to give our past too much power. We let our past control our present by allowing our past to tell us who we are. Instead of hearing who God calls us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has poured on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You see, we live in the same fear that Moses did. What I did must have become known. Instead of seeing ourselves as products of sin, we should be seeing ourselves as children of God. Because God does not allow our past to define our potential. The next phase that I want to talk about, we've talked about the phase of the past. I want to talk about the phase of the present. Let's go back to our scriptures. This isn't going to be quite as long. Right here in, 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 in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, the phase of the present, when Moses heard of this, he tried to kill, or when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Not a whole lot there. As I was reading through commentaries and books this past week on this topic, on this, on this scripture, on this structure here, I ran across this, this wording and this sentence that I love so much that I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of my head. Maybe this will mean something to you too. God uses the mistakes that take us into the wilderness. God uses the mistakes that take us into the wilderness. And I had to, I had to share this. You know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm learning so much, I just have to pour it all over our dinner table, which isn't the best time because I have three young kids who don't really understand what's going on anyway. Um, but I'm sitting there and I said, I said this, God uses, God uses these things that, that take us into our wilderness. God uses the mistakes that take us into the wilderness. And Lucy, my eight-year-old, looks at me and goes, 
what does wilderness mean? And I was like, wow, that's really good. I need to define that for us. And so I told her, she was here first service, and I called her out, and I said, I said, here's our definition of wilderness. It's something that is out of the ordinary. It's a place that is uncomfortable, and it's a place where we give over control. The wilderness, because God uses the mistakes that take us into the wilderness. And in the middle of the wilderness, God is patiently preparing us for something greater. He does this all through scripture. Genesis 28, Jacob is out in the wilderness wondering what's coming next, wondering if he's going to be used by God at all. He's using a rock for a pillow. And and he has this vision of a stairway to heaven and he sees this glorious thing of what's going to happen in his life. 1 Kings 19 is Elijah. Elijah is out in the wilderness wondering if there is still anything left that he has to offer. And he hears a still small voice saying that you still matter. Jonah, we talked about Jonah all across family ministry last week. Talk about a guy in the wilderness. Uncomfortable, not ordinary, and you don't have any control when you're inside of the belly of a big fish. Really beneficial quiet time, I bet he had at that point. And then I think of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, where he lives in the wilderness. People are coming from the cities to to hear him talk about the coming Messiah. And then, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. You see, God is patiently preparing you for something greater in the middle of your wilderness. God uses this wilderness journey of Moses to patiently prepare him for the deliverance that he will lead. Look at this, this map up here. I found this map because I'm curious sometimes, like George. Um, come on, curious George, you guys aren't with me. Come on, let's go. Moses moves to Midian. I love this, okay? So up here in the top left, he leaves Goshen and comes down here, goes across these, these are like foothills of mountains down here when he comes across the middle of the map. And then he comes back down over the top, over the north end of the Red Sea, which in about 40 years, God's gonna do something crazy there, okay? And so he ends up in Midian. And I was like, oh, that's a great map. So then I looked a little bit deeper and I found the next map. Let's go to our next slide here. This is Moses moves to Midian and the Exodus from Egypt. You see the similarities here that happens? This time, he doesn't go around the sea. He goes through it. You see, God is patiently preparing you for something greater, the same way that he was patiently preparing Moses for this greater deliverance journey. And I say patiently. I've said that about eight times over the last 30 seconds. Patiently, because God is not in a hurry for you to get to where he can use you. Moses' wilderness lasted 40 years. Sometimes I look up at God and go, why did I have this terrible day? Because Moses had a lot of them. (laughs) Sometimes our wilderness can be an undetermined amount of time. But God is patiently preparing us. But I think a lot of us can leave out what God is doing now. I think we can walk through a season of wilderness and not even pay attention to what God is doing in our hearts. You see, there's a lot in the scripture that I want answered. I had a lot of questions. So I just started writing them down on my whiteboard upstairs. I started writing them down. Here were some of the questions I had about this text because I wanted to know more about his journey. I said, did Moses know where he was going? 
Did Moses talk with God at all? Was, was Moses chased very far by Pharaoh? Did Moses take anything with him? What was his time of solitude like? Was he replaying the encounter with the Egyptian? Was he dwelling on his comments from the Hebrews? What was he looking for? What made him stop at the well? I have all these questions swirling around in my mind because I'm really just an eight-year-old asking why and what and how and where. And here's the conclusion I came to because our scripture doesn't have anything that tells us beyond he fled to Midian. Bookending this story are two very similar stories but with very different outcomes. And so here's my conclusion. I think in Moses' journey to the wilderness is where God starts to unpack his heart. I think it's where God begins to prepare his heart and his steps for what's next. Clearly, Moses has learned something from the time of his crime in Egypt to now the time of rescuing the seven daughters of the priest. See, I think the wilderness builds a backdrop for growing Moses in a way that wouldn't have been accomplished if he had stayed where he was. I think he learns a reliance on God. He had to know how, the, how difficult this was going to be. He had to know what the journey felt like. He had to know what it was like leaving everything you've ever known going somewhere that you've never been. He had to learn, learn a reliance on God. He had to learn how to trust in God. See, before he could be the deliverer, he needed to be delivered. And I think we tend to fall into the trap of constantly trying to get ourselves out of the wilderness that we're in rather than taking the posture of learning in our wilderness. We do our best to get back to something normal. We do our best to get back to something that's comfortable or even try and make our wilderness a place of comfort. We would give anything to be in control again. And instead of hitting the pause button as we stand in the middle of the wilderness, we try and fast forward through it. We try and fast forward our experience out of the wilderness and into something familiar. When we do this, we may miss what God is trying to do in our hearts. Ephesians 2.10 is just a, a short verse on, on really what I think is a, is a great, great picture of what the wilderness can look like for us. You know what you're saying, Justin, there's no wilderness mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. In fact, Ephesus was kind of a metropolitan area. It had a lot, of, a lot of business booming and everything. There was no wilderness about it, but what Paul says to the church in Ephesus is so impactful here that I wanted us to read it. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. This is a unique verse, as it offers just some incredible insight into the wilderness experience. You see, this verse tells us that God is not only preparing works for us, but God is also preparing us. And I think too often we can take the posture of, I've already made it. The present time, the present phase is so incredibly important. The wilderness is vital to our preparation. Pastor of a multi-site church, Levi Lusco, uh, who pastors Fresh Life Church out in Montana, he had this just tiny little quote on his Instagram this past week that I loved. And I don't know if it was just written down there for me or for our message here this morning or for me to give it to you, but, but this really made an impact on me, and I read it in just one of the most perfect, perfect times he writes, deliverance is a process. It's a process. Moses did everything he could to make deliverance an event. But it really is a process where we'll have to walk through some wilderness. 
We'll have to rely on God. We'll have to put an everlasting trust in him. You see, the present phase of wilderness delivers us an opportunity to learn. The third and final phase, as we've talked about the phase of the past, the phase of the present, is this. The phase of the potential. This is where I want to talk about how there is more to our story. Moses encounters these seven daughters of a priest in Midian. Through his compassion, he assists them. Then through the kindness of the priest himself, he has offered not only compassion and not only his daughter's hand in marriage, but he's offered a fresh start where his past is no longer hindering his potential. You see, he flees out of fear, but he finds rest in the wilderness. And as I was writing, I've got this big whiteboard in my office. Sometimes I just have some, some thought that I just need to write down and try and reword and erase and bring it all back and everything. And I had this sentence sitting on my whiteboard early on in message prep this week. And it was something that I didn't really know how it was going to fit, if it was going to fit, if it was just something for my heart to hold on to. But I think it fits here. And it's this up here on the screen. You cannot have restoration without the word rest. Do you see that? Go to the next slide. You cannot have restoration without the word rest. I think that's so important for us to remember. You see, Moses has this present time in the wilderness to be restored and delivered so that God can help him restore and deliver the Israelites. You see, God is using our story to tell his story. A story of hope, redemption, deliverance, restoration, rescue, a story of brokenness, a story of victory, a story of justice, a story of identity, and a story of potential. God is using our story to tell his story. In John chapter 16, Jesus is having kind of a roundtable discussion with his disciples moments before he's led off to the cross. And he gives them almost some really harsh departing words here. He says to them, in this world you will have trouble. It's not a if. It's not, oh, you might. It's a promise. In this world you will have trouble. Because our world is filled with disease and death. Our world is filled with depression Divorce, anxiety, abuse. Our world is filled with addiction. Our world is filled with hurt and pain. Our world is filled with injustices. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but that's not where he stops. He says, but take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. You see, we would never know what compassion feels like if we didn't experience cruelty. We would never know what security feels like if we didn't experience fear. We would never know what it is to be made whole if we didn't experience our brokenness. You see, just because our story is broken doesn't mean we're unusable. It means that we're human. It means that we are real. It means that we're not finished yet. 
We cannot allow our past choices and circumstances and characteristics to determine our future choices, circumstances, and characteristics because God doesn't allow them to. God takes our past and turns it into his plan. God uses our story to tell his. God redeems and frees and liberates and exchanges our story for his greater purpose. There is more to the story. There is more to your story. There is more to our story. About two, three months ago, I got the opportunity to go visit one of our guys here at the church in the hospital. We got a phone call from, from Carl saying that, that uh, so-and-so was at the hospital. He was requesting uh, a pastoral visitor. It was my day, and I'm so glad it was. So I go down, and I, I walk in, and I, I'm trying to gather some information. So I stop at the nurse's desk, and I ask the nurse there. I said, I said can you tell me anything about him? He said, are you from his church? I said, yes, I am. He goes, he needs to talk to you more than he needs to talk to anybody else. And so um, I walked into his room. He's laying there just very still asleep, and there was a nurse that was watching him in there. I didn't want to wake him, so I started to write a, a note. His doctors come in the room, wake him up, and he's standing there, and they said, oh, are you, are you from his church? Are you his pastor? I said, you bet I am. Doctors left, and we sat down, and I said, tell me what's going on. And for an hour, this man poured out his heart about his alcohol abuse. He said, they found me unconscious in the middle of the road. He's like, I'm lucky to be alive, I guess. Told me about his estranged relationship with his son, because his son has distanced himself from the emotional turmoil that has been caused by this man's addiction. He said, I can't hold down a job. He's like, the only time I felt safe and secure was when I was at Celebrate Recovery at your church. He's like, I've been to your church a few times and it just feels like a safe place. He said, the thing that hurts the most is that I feel like I can't go back there. And I said to him, I said, why do you feel like that? He's like, look at me. And I said, man, if that's true, I'm not allowed there either. And so we sat and we talked about this very thing. And at the end of our hour together, I sat there and I said, hey, can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? He said, please. We grappled hands like we were going to arm wrestle. I mean, he, I don't know if he had not felt a loving hand in a long time. But we gripped hands and we prayed. I prayed for a release from his addiction I prayed that he would find a group of friends that would encourage him, that would love on him, and that would accept him no matter what. I prayed for his relationship with his son. And I felt in the back of my mind before I was leaving, I felt God saying to me, you need to remind him whose he is. So before I got up and left his room, I said, I, said, I just need you to know this. You are always God's child. He just started weeping. I said, you are always loved by God. It doesn't, you don't have to have everything perfect. You don't have to have everything, you don't have to have everything perfect. You don't have to have all your sins boxed up in a little suitcase to where nobody can see them. And I said, and just to let you know, the church is not for fixed people. 
The church is for broken people, and you need to come, and you need to be here. See, it's vital for us to remember that God wants you when you don't want yourself. God loves you when you don't love yourself. Our past doesn't disqualify us from the plan that God qualifies us for. God doesn't see us as ruined. He sees us as redeemed. God doesn't see us as done, but as just getting started. God doesn't count us out, but he invites us in. He doesn't give up on us the way we give up on ourselves. God is the giver of life, the redeemer of sins. He calls us his children when we feel like outcasts. God is the one who sent his son Jesus down here to earth to die on the cross so that we can experience redemption not just in heaven but here as well. God is not scared by our past. We are. We're the ones that are scared by it. God's not scared or intimidated by the things that you have. But we become fearful by the raw and emotional journey that is our past hurts, our past hang-ups, and our past habits. We believe that somehow if our past becomes known in the present, it will forever hinder our potential. But each and every day, God gives us the title of his children. There's not a day that goes by that God doesn't look down on you and say, she's mine. He's mine. There's not a sin that Jesus did not die for. It does not matter what the weight of your sin that you are carrying is. The cross can hold it. See, conditional love says, I'll love you if you do this. But the unconditional love of a father of our Heavenly Father, the unconditional love of God says, I'll love you because I did this. And so the band's going to come back up and we're just going to have a time of worship. And during that time of worship, if there's, if there's something you need to do in this room so that you can experience that worship better, do that. If you need to come up and kneel down at the stairs and, and worship up here in front of the holy God, then do that. If you need to stand with your arms raised in the air, shouting praises to the Lord, do that. If you need to kneel at your seat in prayer, maybe for you, like I said at the beginning, you're not here on accident. If you need to accept Christ for the first time, I'm going to be standing right down here singing my guts out. I would love to talk with you about that. I would love to talk with you about your relationship with Christ. If you have something you just need to confess to somebody, I'm right down here. I would love to speak with you as we worship. There's a question I want us to reflect on. The question's right up here on our screen. The question is not what are you running from, but who are you running to? God is calling you home. Where we get past our past, where we go through our wilderness. He's calling you home where we recognize we still have potential. He's calling us back into a home of unconditional love that does not depend on us, but it hangs on the cross with Jesus. There's more to your story. We just have to allow God to turn the page.